Hey, welcome to Reasonable Faith with Dr. William Lane Craig as we begin a two-part series evaluating an interview with Dr. Richard Dawkins. Let's go to part one today and look at some highlights. And I want to remind you as always as we begin that you can give to Reasonable Faith to keep this ministry speaking out all over the world. Just hit the donate button when you go to reasonablefaith.org. And we certainly appreciate your financial support and especially your prayer support. Here's part one of a recent interview with world famous atheist, Richard Dawkins. Well, Bill, I know we talk about Richard Dawkins pretty often, but he keeps giving us things to talk about. And since he devotes a good portion of this latest interview talking about you, we're going to take a listen today. And Alex O'Connor, the cosmic skeptic, as he's known, who has interviewed you a couple of times, yes. Bill, uh, conducts this interview with Dawkins. And right off the bat, ask him about Ayan Hirsi Ali's conversion to Christianity. Let's go to that first clip. Professor Richard Dawkins, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Ayan Hirsi Ali recently, despite you being perhaps the world's most famous atheist, described you as one of the most Christian people that she knows. Why did she say that? I'm a great fan of hers. I've, I have talked to her about this. Uh, I think the respect in which we differ is that for me, what really matters is the truth claims of Christianity. And for her, what really matters is the morality, the politics, actually. Um, I think for her, Christianity is a bastion against something worse. As Hilaire Belloc said, always keep a hold of nurse for fear of finding something worse. And for her, I think she, she wants a, a faith which will help people to stand up against worse faiths. And she singles out uh, Islam, she singles out China, I think, and Putin and wokeism. Wokeism, yes. Um, and um, I'm with her on, on all those. And uh, to the extent that I think that a religion might be valuable for political reasons, I would go along with her. But I think it's the wrong way to approach religion. I think that what really matters about a religion is whether it's true. And to adopt a religion for, uh, it's almost as though one is saying, well, I don't believe this nonsense, but it's a very good idea if other people do. And there's something patronizing about that. She doesn't do that. She, goes, she, she says, I believe in it. I, I am a Christian. Um, and therefore, it's not patronizing. But I think the, the fundamental motivation is a political and a moral one. Bill, we talked about this very issue in our podcast on I and Hersey Ali. Exactly, Kevin. And I think it's clear, as Dawkins recognizes, that she is a sincere believer. She does believe that Christianity is true and not just useful. Now, it is correct to say that she thinks it is a bastion against worse faiths. But what Dawkins does not mention is that one of those worse faiths that she singles out is the new atheism. Uh, she has deconverted from the new atheism to following Christ. And Dawkins uh, quietly overlooks that element of her conversion. Now, she gives two sorts of reasons for her conversion to Christianity, and one would be political that we've already mentioned. But then he didn't mention the other that you and I talked about, namely the existential where she finds meaning, value, purpose in life 
through a relationship with God. And I think that uh, both of those can be valid motivations. It's clear that she is sincere. She believes it's true. And part of her motivation is that deep existential quest for meaning that she did not find in the new atheism. Yeah. And Bill, we would agree with Dawkins. He says it's the truth claims of the Christian faith that, that are important. Yes. And we would agree. Mm-hmm. We would step to that challenge. Let's go to the next clip then. Dawkins says that this is what drives his atheism. The, the horrific idea of Paul and, and the early Christian fathers um, that we're all born in sin and, and we needed the death of Jesus to save us. That's the kind of thing that I suspect drives your atheism. Whereas for me, I, that's irrelevant. I mean, for me, I, I talk about it, but... For me, what really drives it is the scientific question is, is there a creator underneath the universe? Because if there is, then it's a profoundly different kind of universe from a scientific point of view, From if there isn't. To me, that's the big question. The problem of evil, to me, wouldn't, shouldn't be a real problem because you just say, well, there could be an evil God. and that, So that, that, that's a lesser question for me. Humanity's sin problem is a horrific idea, he says. And the scientific question is what drives his atheism. Bill? Well, I I think that what's important to understand that Dawkins does not grasp is that it's not just a scientific question. The question of the existence of God uh, is a profound philosophical question. And there may be good philosophical reasons for believing in God that are not scientific in nature. For example, think of the moral argument uh, or the ontological argument or the argument from the uh, uncanny applicability of mathematics. There are good philosophical reasons for believing in God in addition to um, scientific evidence that can support premises in philosophical arguments uh, for God. In this next clip, he says, Darwin solved the biggest question. The big problem of design, as William Paley put it, was life. He said something like, the physical world is not the best place in which to to, um, demonstrate the the existence of the the, the creator because it's too simple. Hmm. And I think he was right. And um, he he was also right when he said that the the really big problem for religion is, is, is life. And yes. his, both his his whole book is based upon looking at design in the in the living world. Darwin solved that. So Darwin solved the big one, and um, we have some re- remaining problems. the The arc is still hasn't really reached its end. We still have some problems with the origin of the laws of physics, the origin of the universe. But I think that the fact that Darwin solved the big one should gives us give us confidence. That that was the really difficult one. The 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 amazing apparent design in the living world. I mean, that is such an, a staggeringly overwhelming impression of, of design. There's no question about that. And that was the one that Darwin solved. A couple of questions come out of that, Bill. One, is the work of William Paley still valuable today? I'm curious about that. And did Darwin, in fact, solve the big problem? I think Paley's argument is still valuable in terms of its form. It is an inference to the best explanation. And I think that there are um, good arguments, such as from the fine-tuning of the universe, for the existence of a cosmic designer of the universe. 
I think that Professor Dawkins, frankly, greatly exaggerates the scope of Darwin's achievement. Unfortunately, as a scientist, he enjoys a great deal of credibility in our culture, and so people tend to believe uncritically what he says. But if you scratch beneath the surface, um, you'll find that the issues are much more complicated and much more controversial than what Dawkins gives them out to be. For example, he says the main question is life, and yet we have made no progress in understanding the origin of life on this planet. It remains a mystery, and Darwinian evolutionary theory is absolutely irrelevant to the question of the origin of life because evolutionary theory presupposes that there are living uh, organisms, self-replicating cells, which then develop in their diversity and complexity. But it has no way and no relevance to uh, explain the origin of life itself. And even with respect to evolutionary biology, I think that Professor Dawkins um, greatly exaggerates what has been accomplished. The eminent evolutionary biologist Francisco Ayala identifies three distinct aspects of the contemporary evolutionary paradigm. The first of these would be universal common ancestry, uh, and this is what is usually called the fact of evolution. That is to say that all living organisms today are related to each other by common descent from a few uh, primordial ancestors. And so Ayala says this is what biologists mean when they say that evolution is a fact. Uh, it implies that there is a sort of evolutionary tree of life such that all living things, other than the very first, uh, stem back from some uh, simple primordial ancestor or ancestors, uh, rather than that there are multiple trees of life. So that's the first element of the evolutionary paradigm, universal common ancestry, which is uh, very widely accepted and regarded as a fact. The second aspect of contemporary evolutionary theory that Ayala identifies is what he calls evolutionary history. And this is the reconstruction of the tree of life, showing all the various lineages that branched off from one another all the way back to the roots. And Ayala explains that evolution in this sense is a matter of great uncertainty. Uh, let me read to you what he says. He says, unfortunately, there is a lot, lot, lot more to be discovered still. To reconstruct evolutionary history, we have to know the mechanisms, how they operate in detail, and we have only the vaguest idea of how they operate at the genetic level, how genetic change relates to development and to function. I am implying that what would need to be discovered would be not only details, but some major principles. So evolution in this second sense, tracing the tree of life, remains a matter of great uncertainty and controversy. In fact, in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, Dawkins himself says, that this is one of the most acrimonious areas of evolutionary biologists 
where disagreements are, are deep and emotional. Now, the third aspect of the contemporary evolutionary paradigm that Ayala identifies is those explanatory mechanisms behind evolutionary change. And again, Ayala thinks that this third aspect of evolutionary biology remains a matter of great controversy. He writes, and I quote, the mechanisms accounting for these changes are still undergoing investigation. The evolution of organisms is universally accepted by biological scientists, while the mechanisms of evolution are still actively investigated and are the subject of debate among scientists, end quote. So I think you can see how misleading it is when people say that evolution is a proven fact that is universally accepted by biologists. That is true at most in the sense of the word evolution as descent with modification or universal common ancestry. But insofar as evolution refers to those second and third aspects of evolutionary theory that Ayala explains, it is not frankly, an established fact. According to Ayala, and I quote, the second and third issues, seeking to ascertain evolutionary history, as well as to explain how and why evolution takes place, are matters of active scientific investigation. Some conclusions are well established. Many matters are less certain. Others are conjectural and still others remain largely unknown. And so there are certain unsolved problems uh, in contemporary evolutionary biology. Let me just mention three of these uh, for our listeners today. One of them would be the problem of transitional forms, how you explain the gradual morphing of species into one another. And Dawkins himself recognizes that this resolves itself into the question, has there been enough time for these successive generations to evolve this degree of diversity and complexity? And in answer to this question, has there been enough time, all Dawkins has to offer is, quote, geological time is awfully long, end Hmm. quote. Well, right, but that leaves the question unanswered. Well, Dawkins next asks then whether given a series of successive generations, each member of the series can plausibly arise by random mutation of its predecessor. And in answer to this question, Dawkins says, my feeling is that provided the difference between the neighboring intermediates is sufficiently small the necessary mutations are almost bound to be forthcoming. It is thoroughly believable that every organ or apparatus that we actually see is the product of a smooth trajectory through animal space. Now, look at his language here. His feeling (laughs) is, it is thoroughly believable. Uh, What we have here is simply an appeal to personal credulity as opposed to rigorous scientific demonstration. Uh, Dawkins fails to show that the continuous path through animal space that he envisions 
uh, wouldn't leave. Uh, animals marooned on fitness peaks in the fitness landscape, unable to take realistically the next step in the process. Finally, Dawkins asked whether it's plausible that each member of the series worked sufficiently well to facilitate the survival of the animal concerned. And in respect, uh, for example, to the series of intermediate eyes, Dawkins answers very cautiously. He says, it's less obvious, but I think that it is. Now, this again is far, far different from the sort of certainty and confidence that he projects in these public interviews. I think it's evident that this remains a problem that is uh, uncertain and unsolved. In addition to that problem of transitional forms, there's the problem of how organizational forms originate, how the body plans of various animals originate. These appear very suddenly on the scene, and it's unclear how these body plans uh, evolve. And then finally, number three would be the problem of genetic information, in particular the genetic code, which traces all the way back to the most primitive uh, bacteria. And we have no explanation of how this genetic code came to originate. So the point that I'm making here, Kevin, is really a very modest one. It is simply that the acknowledged explanatory deficits of the original Darwinian theory of evolution, but also of the so-called modern synthesis or neo-Darwinism, have not been fully rectified uh, even by the advances of the so-called extended evolutionary synthesis, which is now taking the place of the neo-Darwinism that Dawkins Uh, champions. We still have a great deal to learn about the causal mechanisms underlying the evolutionary history of life. And that conclusion, Kevin, is widely acknowledged and I think hardly surprising. So today a whole host of causal mechanisms uh, jostle to account for the correlations between uh, the genetic uh, structure and the morphological form or manifest uh, characteristics of organisms. The evolutionary biologist Eugene Koonin uh, pulls no punches. This is what he says, and I'll close with this quote. He says, in the post-genomic era, all major tenets of the modern synthesis, that's uh, Dawkins' preferred model, all the major tenets of the modern synthesis are if not outright overturned, replaced by a new and incomparably more complex vision of the key aspects of evolution. So, not to mince words, Kunin concludes, the modern synthesis is gone. Wow. Bill, those things that you mentioned there, they bring up some important issues because they're going to be uh, perhaps some of our young earth friends who say, see there, this just shows, these problems show that evolution is is not true. And other believers who would hold to evolution in various forms to say, no, it doesn't show that. It just shows that uh, perhaps, though, that more intelligent intervention 
would be required because of the complexity of some of these things. Do you see where I'm getting that, how people are going to take this data? You know, the points that I've made here have been made for years by creationists and advocates of intelligent design, but I think they were largely ignored because all they could do was poke holes in the evolutionary paradigm, but they had no better alternative to offer in its place. And young earth creationism is certainly not a credible alternative to explaining the history of life on this planet. So I think that what we learn from the evolution of the theory of evolution and the extended (laughs) evolutionary synthesis is that Dawkins' confidence in Charles Darwin and saying that Darwin solved the big problem, that it's all wrapped up now, is just smoke and mirrors, frankly. And we need to continue to advance in trying to understand the causal mechanisms behind the uh, origin of biological complexity on this planet. And it is not at all implausible to think that this is under the directing supervision of a cosmic intelligence, though I'm not making that point. Uh, My point here is much more modest, simply that Dawkins has grossly exaggerated for his audience the extent to which Charles Darwin has solved the big problem. Okay, let's stop right there for today, but let me tell you, it gets really juicy in part two. That's coming up. Thanks for being here. I'm Kevin Harris. This is Reasonable Faith with Dr. William Lane Craig, and we'll see you next time.